You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life spirit. Heavenly Father, we do call on you to teach us, to help us to understand, to help us to internalize the truths that you're setting forth, Father, that our lives would be further changed from faith to faith, from grace to grace, that Father, the result would be your glory and our our increase in Christ-likeness. So, Father, we look to you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week, we wrapped up chapter 6. There's many, many more things that could be said in chapter 6, but we we wrapped up in verse 17 and 18, really, Verse 17, looking at the uh, standard of teaching primarily is what we were looking at. If you look back to verse 17, Paul gives thanks to God that you, that is the believer, were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. And one of the burdens that I wanted to press forth last week is that we are actually committed to the standard of teaching not the standard of teaching committed to us. And you'll recall that we did a little bit of a word study last week that the word that Paul's using there is a word we're all familiar with, that uh, typos we're not so much familiar with, but type, uh, T-Y-P-E, we we are familiar with type. And the meaning is like a mold. Um, If you think of the Easter candy, I don't know if kids still do this. Do they still make little things... uh, uh, you have the little molds and you pour the, the the chocolate into the molds and then you pull the... Maybe nobody does that anymore. I don't know. But uh, some are smiling at me like, okay. Um, uh, you pour the, the melted chocolate into the mold and after it cools, you pull the mold off and what does the chocolate look like? It looks like the mold, doesn't it? Uh, loved ones, we're being poured into a mold as I speak right now. That's the beauty of that verse. We're being committed to the standard of teaching. What does the mold look like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus is 
is is is is uh, wonderfully revealed in his word and uh, the standard of teaching would encompass the word if you will and uh, ultimately the the word the word uh, points to a person doesn't it it, per- it points to Christ and as we gather for for worship on Sunday, it may seem routine. There may be many Sundays where we say, you know, I don't think I got much out of that. You were in a mold. You got more out of that than you realize. And if you if you quit coming, you quit putting yourself in that mold, you'll quickly find out just how much you are getting out of that because that whole process will cease to take place. And how quickly, uh, how quickly we realize then and there uh, we have not been in the mold. Uh, this is a wonderful thing to come on the Lord's day and to be put into the mold. Um, now we move on to Romans 7. And because it's a new chapter, I think sometimes we're tempted to think, OK, it's a new chapter. Uh, we're we're going to be moving on to a new subject and we are going to be moving on to a slightly new subject. But initially, what we're doing in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, is continuing the argument of Romans 6. And if you're like me, I like schematics. I like diagrams. How many like diagrams? Pictures. You know, some of us are that way, where we get more out of a picture, a diagram. I'm going to try to give you a diagram, if you will, to try to sort all of this out. I think it is really, really helpful if we go all the way back to chapter five all the way back to the beginning of chapter five paul is you know paul is telling us we have peace and peace is a wonderful thing because what has paul been telling us in chapter one through chapter three what has paul been telling us he's been telling us that it's bad he's been telling us that there's no one who does good not even one you know all that stuff And uh, it reminds us that wrath awaits us. It reminds us that apart from Christ Jesus, there's no hope. And then Paul begins to tell us how uh, we can acquire the righteousness that we don't have. We do it by faith in Christ Jesus. The very righteousness of Jesus is given to us. And Paul begins to develop that. And we've looked at that uh, many, many times over. And chapter five begins, really, if you want to you want to summarize the first half of it with one word, it's the word peace. We can have peace with God. And if we have been following Romans, if we've been following Paul's argument, that is going to be a wonderful thing. We read there's no one who does good. All have turned aside together. All have become worth. We read those verses that are very tough on us. And after reading those verses to discover that God has designed a way that the hostility that existed between us and God can now be taken away and we can actually have peace with God and Christ Jesus. And then Paul begins to develop the typology of Adam being the first man, if you will, if you the first Adam, if you will, and Christ being the second Adam, if you will, where Adam fails in the garden. Jesus, he is successful, isn't he? And we have this this uh, typology uh, in in chapter five, verses twelve and onward, until we get to chapter or until we get to verse twenty of chapter five, where Paul now begins to talk about the law. 
And he says that the, he says something, as we've said many times, he, he says something that would have been like nails down a chalkboard or a, a fork across the plate. How many like that sound of the fork across the plate? Even just describing that gives you like the chills, doesn't it? Um, I know it does Tammy something terribly. If uh, I really want to be ornery. I mean, just one little eat, and that's all it takes, you know. Probably just describing it is enough to, uh, uh, to recall the sound. And, and th- this would have been worse than that. I mean, there, there, are folks, there are folks who Paul is writing to who believe and embrace that the law has been given in order to increase righteousness. And on the surface of it, it kind of makes sense. Okay, here we are. You know, uh, if we can get these laws and we can get a little education and we can get, you know, a little this and a little that, well then, you know, hey, we're going to become more righteous, right? No, as we're going to see in Romans 7, no. We're going to be talking about that quite a bit as we work our way through Romans 7. Paul says, no, the laws, the laws come to increase the, the trespass. Uh, but where sin increased, Paul says, grace abounded all the more. And, of course, that raises objections. And uh, I, I'm taking you through all of this because what I want you to understand is that when we turn to chapter 7 of Romans, Paul is still dealing with these objections. He's still dealing with these objections. Now, let me give you a diagram here in your mind, okay? If you look at... Um, uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What is Paul doing there? Undoubtedly recalling objections that he has heard over the years as he has preached the gospel. He's undoubtedly doing that. He's, he, he's fielding uh, objections that he has actually heard, and he's anticipating that others are, are going to be objecting. Paul, if you preach this business, people are just going to live any way they want. In fact, some might even suggest maybe we ought to just go on sinning and, 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 and be fast and loose in sin so that we can receive God's forgiveness afresh over and over and over again. And Paul is saying, I'm going to give you three reasons why that is utter nonsense. First one is baptism. Baptism. If you look at uh, chapter 6 and really the beginning of ch- the first half of chapter 6, Paul says... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he goes on to say that those who have been baptized in Christ Jesus also uh, not only have union in Christ's death, but we have union in his resurrection. Now, a couple quick comments. Uh, Is water baptism in view here? Yes. Does water baptism accomplish this in and of itself? No. Thank you. I saw a couple people go, no. Amen. Thumbs up. If that were the case, then what are we doing here? Let's get out and let's start baptizing people. Just chase them with a water hose or something and baptize them. I mean, if we discovered a cure for a disease, uh, I mean, we could get around to all of the citizens of the country with that cure. We've done it in times past as we have found various vaccinations for things. We've gotten around and uh, you can get into the school system. You can get into the various health departments. You can summon you can summon the, the citizens of a, a nation, the citizens of a country, and see that everyone is vaccinated. If baptism could affect this, then let's get started. But it's that's not how it works, is it? When 
When Paul mentions baptism, he's speaking in shorthand for the whole conversion experience. Baptism is shorthand. It is the emblem. It is the, it is the sign of the new covenant, isn't it? And as a sign of the new covenant, uh, it, in, it encompasses all that the new covenant uh, brings, correct? Namely, the promise that if we put our faith and our trust in Christ, what happens? He takes our sins away. His righteousness is given to us. Uh, we're made right with God. We have peace with God, right? And what Paul is doing in Romans 6 is taking us deeper into that. Taking us deeper into that. To say that faith unites us so closely with Jesus that it unites us with Christ in his death. So that in this spiritual sense, when Christ dies on the cross, we in that spiritual sense died with him. And faith unites us so closely to Jesus that in the spiritual sense, when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, we were raised with him. So Paul is giving an argument from baptism. Then that'd be the first part of our diagram. The second part of our diagram would be slavery. Slavery in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 15. Notice Paul picks up this objection again. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Uh, Paul is taking a slightly different angle here, but he's still arguing uh, against these same objections, which is what I want you to see. Uh, all, the way, all the way through chapter 7 and verse 6, he's going to be doing this. And he takes a, he uses slavery. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Now, we in our culture don't usually attribute uh, slavery with freedom. In fact, I think we're, we're generally uh, prone to do the exact opposite. And one of the things that we have to overcome is that in our, our culture believes this, that to be free is to be free to do whatever you please, to do whatever we want. I just do whatever I want. That would be true freedom. The, the, scriptures, the scriptures say no to that. The scriptures say no. You're always going to be a slave to something. In other words, you're always going to serve someone or something. I like to use Bob Dylan as my, as my standard illustration of this when he says you've got to serve someone. And that famous song that he wrote all those years ago. You gotta serve someone. You guys have heard that before. That's my best Bob Dylan uh, impression. Uh, he's actually right. He's correct. You have to, we all will serve someone or something. There's no way around it. There's only two choices. We're serving God or we're serving the other side, correct? So Paul's taking... Uh, He's taking, he's using baptism, he's using slavery, and he's going to use marriage. And when we come to uh, Romans 7, Paul is now going to use marriage to make his point. He's using baptism, he's using slavery, he's using marriage. Now, that's somewhat of a larger um, uh, view, if you will. Imagine we're on our computers and we're looking at something, uh, this is the larger picture, if you will. Now let's zoom in on it. Let's zoom in and get a, a, 
uh, a picture of the verses that we've come to. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I'll give you a little outline. It's not unique to me. You'll find this outline. If you start reading commentaries on, on this passage, you'll find many commentators use uh, principle, illustration, and application uh, as a simple outline of our of our text this morning. It, it, it just lends itself to this, and that's the that's the outline that I want to use this morning. In, in verse 1, Paul introduces a principle. In verses 2 to 3, he gives an illustration of that principle. And in verses 4, 5, and 6, he gives an application of that principle. The, the first two steps are pretty easy. The third step can be quite difficult. Um, let's let's start with the. I usually like to do the difficult stuff first, but in this case, we we have to we have to we have to, uh, we're going to have to save it for a few minutes here. What is the principle that Paul's talking about? Well, notice he's using that phrase. Do you not know, brothers? He, he's using that over and over again. You know, and that should always be a reminder that these things are important for us to know. Uh, I, I know it's hard, and sometimes it might even seem a little bit dry to wrestle through all these verses week in and week out. Uh, but this is part of the mold. It's part of the mold. And this is shaping us more than you realize. Paul says, do you not know, brothers? Now, you probably have a footnote there that says brothers and sisters. Uh, do you not know, brothers and sisters, all who are in the faith? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. What is the principle? The principle is stated at the very end of the verse. Namely, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Okay? Only as long as he lives. Now, Paul is speaking here. He's speaking to an objection uh, to uh, chapter 6 and verse 14. And you'll hear this verse quoted all the time. If you look back to chapter 6 and verse 14, uh, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you. Okay, you might not hear that so much as you hear the second half of it. Since you're not under law, but under grace. And you'll hear people talk about that all the time. Well, we're not under law, uh, we're under grace. Now, Paul is speaking to this objection and he, he, he's made this statement, we're not under law, we're under grace. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, Paul has been given the negative answer of that in verses 15 through 23, which we've looked at. The negative answer to that. In Romans 7, verses 1 to 6, he's given the positive answer, if you will. And what Paul is saying is the law is binding as long as, as the sinner lives. Now, I, I mentioned this Wednesday night at our Bible study that the law, once you break the law, <clears throat> it gets a hold of you. And it won't let go. It can't let go. Because the law says you shall or you shall not. And once we violate that law, that law says if you, if you violate this law, then this is going to happen. So once we violate that law, well, then now the law has its grip on us. 
If we commit the crime, what's going to happen? How's it, how's it go uh, here? It, it, um, uh, you, you commit the crime, or how's that go? Please help me. You do the, t- Alex, it's a little louder. There he goes. I trust everyone heard Alex there. Um, it has its grip. Once you've committed the crime, well, what's, okay, you're in for the sentence, aren't you? It has its grip on you. It has its grip on you. And uh, the law is always picking on you. You ever notice that? Try to keep the law. Try to keep the law. It ain't going to leave you alone. No matter how hard you try, it's going to say, well, it's never going to say, well, that was a good job. You know, it, it wasn't perfect, but it, it, it was a pretty good. It, it ain't going to say that to you. It's only going to be reminding you of your faults. It's just going to be saying you, you blew it over here. You, you didn't keep this. You didn't keep this. You didn't keep this. You didn't keep this. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. It's fault finding. It's critical constantly of you. No matter how hard you try to hide it, it's right there exposing your heart. No matter how hard you try to backpedal it, it sends you. It convicts you. It would be better if the law were bad. Oh, if the law were bad, that would be great because we could say just take it down. Just get it off those courtroom walls. Get it down because it's bad. All it does is teach us how bad we are. Do away with it. Get rid of it. But in the back of our minds, we know it's not bad. That's what makes it so worse. If it were bad, this would be easy. Our consciences wouldn't be pricked by it. But it's good. And it reminds us that we're bad. So we try to be good. And we try. And we try. And we try. And what happens? It won't let us go. There it is, convicting us, judging us, sentencing us, fault-finding us. And Paul's principle is this goes on as long as the sinner lives. Now, Paul gives an illustration. That's the principle. Here's the illustration. Verse 2. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, uh, it's easy for us to get all messed up with this illustration. I mean, if we if we think to ourselves, well, Paul, you know, in our culture, no one takes this seriously. Paul's not talking about that. Uh, or if we say, well, wait a second, Paul. I mean, does this mean that there is no grounds for divorce? That you, Paul's not talking about that. He's not talking about that. If we try to if we try to bring all of that stuff in here, we're going to get into a mess. There's three things that are important here. What are they? I can't hear you. Come on. For the recording, let everybody know. Context, context, in context, right? What is the context? The principle. Paul's just drawing on a principle. You know, this is the principle that once the covenant ceremony has been given, okay, you have a covenant ceremony. That's what a wedding is. It's a covenant ceremony. 
where we have witnesses and we come together and vows are exchanged. And now after that ceremony, the law is binding upon these two parties, correct? These two parties. Do you take, you know, Chris, do you take Becca to be your wife, to love her, to hold her, to cherish her till what? Till death do you Chris, he said, I do. And Becca, she said the same thing, right? Okay, that's binding now, isn't it? And Paul's point is that law is binding until when? Under all normal circumstances. Okay, in cases of infidelity and abandonment, their divorce is biblical. It's not... It's not something that's um, that we should take lightly. It's I'm not backpedaling it. But again, Paul's not talking about that under normal circumstances. Once that covenant ceremony has been has ratified that covenant, once that covenant has been ratified with witnesses and the ceremony and the vows, the law is now binding, isn't it? It's now binding. As long as. okay, these two are alive, correct? For if, if one party goes over here and uh, uh, lives with another party, then um, this person would be an adulterer or an adulteress, correct? But if one of the parties dies, well, the marriage covenant now is nullified, isn't it? And the party is free to remarry. If that's what the party would decide to do. If not, they're free. And that's the Paul's point is that the sinner, his point is that the law is binding as long as the sinner lives. That's the principle. The illustration is taken from marriage. Now, in application, this is where it gets tricky. Um, and what I want to really for what's going to follow, let me give credit where credit is due because this last move that I want to make, I'm going to tell you exactly where I got this from. I got this from a, a sermon that was preached by Sinclair Ferguson. The best I can tell is probably around 2009. And I got to tell you, the, the, the sermon is um, it's on Romans 7, 1 to 6. It's entitled Free from the Law. And if you're so inclined that you want to listen to this message, I will tell you, I have, I have to think, I believe it's the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. And I've heard a lot of sermons. I've listened to it over and over again. And I've been reduced practically to tears as I've listened to his final move in that sermon. And I want to do my best to try to share it with you. Uh, there is no way I can. I could even approach doing half the job that he does in his message of applying this. You know, the tricky thing that we come to here is that uh, the illustration, you know, in the illustration, in verses two and three, who dies? Who dies in the illustration? It's the husband, right? The husband dies, okay? And the woman is free to marry. Now, when we get to verse four, Paul says, likewise. So he's he's making some type of uh, uh, similitude here. He's making some type of connection here. 
Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died. So who dies in the application? It's the believer, isn't it? And this has actually caused many unbelieving commentators to actually stop here and begin to make fun of the Apostle Paul. Uh, I could have brought some quotes uh, where uh, some of these commentators basically say this, you know, that Paul, he couldn't, he, you know, this guy just couldn't, he couldn't drum up an illustration of his life dependent upon it. Look at this. Look how he botches this all up. And, and if you, you read and study this a little bit, you'll see there's a lot of, a lot of commentators that do this. Uh, uh, those uh, uh, who are of the skeptical sort. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, Paul, you know, he couldn't, he's one of those guys that couldn't tell a joke. You know, you, you, uh, you ever hear a joke and, and you think I'm going to, I'm going to repeat the joke and, and then you go and you try to repeat the joke and you, you botch it all up and the punchline doesn't come out the way you heard it. And, and of course, the person who hears it looks at you and they just don't get it. You know, um, this is what these commentators will say is going on here. Uh, well, we, we certainly are going to, when there's a problem like this in Scripture, it's arrogant for us to think that the problem is with Scripture. It's really arrogant for us to blame Scripture on these kind of problems. Could it be that we simply don't understand what Paul is doing? Is that a possibility? I'd say that's more than a possibility. I'd say that's 100, probably 100% of the time what is going on. Uh, let me get the probably out of there. That is 100% of the time what's going on. Let's take all probability out of it. Uh, what is going on here? Sinclair uh, he reminds us, he points out that Paul could, if all Paul was saying, and this is where this is where actually most commentators, what most commentators say that Paul is doing here as, as, as they try to sort this out, what most commentators say is that uh, death ends all obligations to the law and therefore it can no longer condemn us. And that's, Certainly not untrue. I mean, that's that's the principle, isn't it? And what they say is, okay, here's what Paul's up to. What he's saying is like, death nullifies all obligations of the law, and uh, therefore the law can no longer condemn. And um, Sinclair Ferguson says in his sermon that he has over 100 commentaries on Romans. A hundred, over a hundred. Uh, I, I don't have over a hundred commentaries on Romans. There are still books of the Bible that I don't own any commentary on other than the, you know, you get this, the, the, the single volumes that cover all the books. Uh, before I, I collect any more commentaries on Romans, I'd like to get some commentaries on some of the books I don't have commentaries on. He has over a hundred commentaries. He has perused this quite deeply. And he says that most of the commentators and uh, he goes on to say that many of these commentators are people whom he deeply respects. Uh, that what they say is all that Paul is doing here is saying that, okay, Paul is pointing out that death ends all obligations to the law, therefore it can no longer condemn us. Now, Sinclair Ferguson stops right there. If you listen to his message, he'll stop right there. And he's very quick to say, listen, I don't want to be dogmatic about this. Uh, I don't want to be dogmatic about this. I don't want to be forceful about this. But let's give this some consideration. 
If all Paul wanted to do was simply say that death ends all obligation to the law, therefore it can no longer condemn, why would he give the illustration? We wouldn't need the illustration. I think that's a strong argument. And he says, you know, there's something going on here. And what he presents is a small, it's not his own view. There, are, there is a small minority of, of biblical interpreters that take this view. And um, here is the view that he, uh, that he um, expounds on. And I would ask you to use your best judgment. I'm sharing this with you because I, I've become convinced that to my measure of faith, this is the correct view. But again, I don't want to be forceful about this uh, either. Uh, Let me just share it with you. But I really believe it opens this text right up. And I'll leave you to be the judge. If we go back to Romans 5, 12 and 21, we learn there that by nature, we are in union with Adam, right? I mean, those of you who have heard all those messages, how many times did I talk about that? When we are born into this world, we are born into this world in Adam, correct? We're born in Nate. We're born in union with Adam. Now, what is a marriage? Is it not a union? We could say in this sense that when we are born into this world, we're born into this world married to Adam. Does that make sense? Okay. We belong to Adam. We are in union with Adam. Now, when you get to Romans 6 and verse 6, what do we discover there? We discover that our old self was what? Crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And as we have studied those verses, what have we said? Our union with Adam is severed, isn't it? That's what salvation involves, doesn't it? Extracting us out of union with Adam, out of union with the flesh, the world, and the evil one, and being brought into union with who? With Christ, right? So one union is terminated and another union is, uh, is uh, connected. We might say that we belong to Adam, we were married to Adam, but now this marriage has been severed. been severed so that we are free to marry another does that make sense I think that makes a lot of sense Because we're not free to marry another while we're married to someone else, are we? If we are, if we do, we're adulterers or adulteress. Sinclair fleshes this out with 
an illustration from the counseling room, if you will. If you, um, if you do counseling, and actually some of us, there are some of us in the room who have actually lived this. You don't need to go into the counseling room to understand this. Either way, some marriages don't turn out the way you wanted them to turn out, do they? The person who you thought you were marrying, or let me put it this way, the person you married was not the person who you thought they were. Now, some of us have some experience with that. And how did that go? Sinclair fleshes it out. In fact, in his, in his illustration, he calls the woman Mary. Mary has married a man who's not who Mary thought he was. Very shortly after getting married, she realizes the person she married is not the person that he presented himself to be during the courtship. No, he's abusive. He's controlling. He's domineering. He's jealous. He has no mercy. He has no pity. He has no compassion. He is cold. He has no love. Mary says to herself, I will win his love. I will change him. I will win his love. I will serve him faithfully. I, I, I will love him like he has never been loved before. Then he continues to abuse her further. Fault finding. She tries again. Harder. And he only nitpicks at her faults. He never compliments her. He never embraces her. He says, you know, you did a truly wonderful job. No. He points out her faults. She works harder. But no matter how hard she tries, all he has for is cold, cold fault finding. No mercy. No compassion. No tenderness. No love. Only cold words, the chilling words of failure. This is the old marriage in Adam. This is the old marriage in Adam. You belong to Adam and no matter how hard you tried, you could never please Moses, if you will. You could never please the law. You could never please the law. You were never good enough. It was an impossible situation from the start. No matter what you did. I mean, Mary tries and tries and tries to please her cold husband. She fails and she fails and she fails. She tries and she tries and she tries. She fails and she fails and she fails. But then he dies. One day this husband dies. And Mary is set free from that relationship. But no sooner is she set free and somebody new is courting her. Mary, you're lovely. Oh, I'm not lovely. I'm like this. I'm, oh, hush, Mary. Hush, Mary. Why do you say these things? Because it's true. I'm, I'm, oh, Mary, hush. Hush, Mary. No. I love you, Mary. 
She doesn't really believe that this man loves her. He's just putting his best foot forward until, you know, what's he want from me? What's he want? But she continues to gaze at his beauty and his tenderness. She's never felt such tenderness. When he looks at her, it's like he doesn't see anybody else. When she talks to him, it's like there's no one else on the planet but me. Where's the catch here? There's no catch. There's no catch. She thinks it's too good to be true. She thinks I'll fail him. And when I fail him, it's going to be like it was before. She says, I won't fail him. May I never fail him. I won't fail him. But the fact is that Mary will fail him. And when she does fail him, how will he treat her? Will he be critical of her? Will he be fault-finding of her? No. No. First order of business is to tell Mary how much he loves her and to receive her into his arms. And this wins her heart even further and she'll want to serve him even more. But she will fail and he will again prove to be loving and merciful and compassionate. So unlike the old situation. It couldn't be more opposite than the old situation, could it? She labors to please him, but not because she's afraid of his abuse. She labors to please him because she is, he has so won her heart. How could she not but labor to please him? And when she fails, she turns to him, not in fear of, of abuse, not in fear of fault finding, not in fear of, of, this, of this criticalness. No, she knows that when she's failed, she can run to him and be received in tender compassion and mercy. Who is this husband? Who is this husband that is courting her? Who is this husband who has won her love? It is Christ Jesus, isn't it? Have you walked down the aisle to meet Christ Jesus at the front? Some of us have, haven't we? For some of us, it's been really recently. For some of us, it's been many years ago. But as we come to the table this morning, why don't we have a why don't we have a remarriage ceremony? Let's walk down the aisle. Who is standing at the front waiting to greet us? Who is so gorgeous? Who is that at the front? It's Christ. Do I do we look okay? Or, or do we look it doesn't matter. He wants us just the way we are. Are you sure? Are you sure? Come on. What are you waiting for? Behold your husband. Do you take him to be your husband? To love and to serve? Many of you have. Maybe there's a couple in the room who haven't. Look upon him. Look upon him. 
take him. This is salvation. I think this is the correct interpretation. It's a minor, it's a it's it's a minority interpretation. I always am committed to pointing that out to you when I come to these things. It's the view that I have. But this is salvation. The old has died. You have died from your former marriage in Adam so that you could be set free to marry Christ. Come down that aisle. Fix your eyes upon Christ. Behold your husband. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you, Father, for your goodness, for your grace. It is so difficult to preach these things, Father, without our eyes filling with tears and our hearts overflowing with joy. Well, Father, I think that's the way it's supposed to be. So we make no apologies for our runny noses or our watery eyes because this is the joy. This is the joy of salvation. This is the joy of that old marriage being severed in Adam and a new relationship forming and taking place that is so intimate that it could be likened to marriage. Father, we behold our husband this morning and we take him to be ours. And with your grace and with your empowerment, we will learn to to serve him and honor him. But we will fail just like Mary. But Father, our hearts are then even even won further because of the way that our husband treats us when we do fail. He, He embraces us. He loves us. He walks with us. He gives to us without finding fault. And he gives to us generously helping us through our difficulties, helping us through our sin, helping us through those vices that have such a grip on us. Because our husband is making us perfect like him. So, Father, we do thank you for giving us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that could make that would be would desire us, that would take delight in us, that would wait at the front of the assembly for us to come down the aisle, and would receive us with warts and all for the express purpose of making us perfect. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.